You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Before I ask my podcast guest this week a whole bunch of questions, I have a question for you. Are you coming to my super conference? If you haven't registered yet, do so right now. It's November 11th and 12th, right here in New York City. Lynn Ahrens, Glenn Slater, John Rando, Lee Silverman. We've got lawyers, directors, marketing experts all there for you. And you're going to get a chance to meet and network with all of them and all the other pros just like you. Go to theproducersperspective.com and click on that register button and sign up today. We will see you there. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kendavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kendavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. It's Ken Davenport. Welcome back to the Producers Perspective podcast. Please welcome to the show the Tony-nominated set designer, Mr. David Corrins. Welcome, David. Thank you. Oh, my God. You just put on, like, your talk show voice. Yeah, it's good, right? We were here for an hour talking, and you're, like, regular, and I, now I've you're a super cat. dreamed about being Shadow Stevens. <laughs> You've got to get a little smoother. Yeah, no, it's not going to work. That's why I'm doing this. David has almost 20 Broadway shows in his resume, despite being probably one of the youngest scenic designers out there, I would imagine, on Broadway with your kind of cred. How old are you? 22? 41. 41. There you go. See? I was right. Some of those shows, a few that you've never heard of, <laughs> Hamilton, Dear Evan Hansen, as well as uh, last season, Bandstand, War Pain, a couple seasons ago, Motown, Annie, my production of Godspell you did for me, thank you very much, and a bunch more. He's also done opera, film, TV, including things like Grease Live, concerts, and is this true? You're designing the reopening of the theatrical eatery Bond 45, is this true? That is true. I've never heard it called a theatrical eatery, but I feel like you just coined, you got a t-shirt in that. Why is it so late? There's my first question. Because we have you ever out. built an institution inside of a landmark building? No. Well, there you go. I mean, it, there were steel issues. The, the Edison Hotel is going through like a sixty million dollar renovation, and I think it's like Christmas lights. One goes out, they all go out. But by the way, once it opens, you'll never remember it was gone. It's going to be great. It's so let's let's get to the real subject at hand: set design. So, which came first for you? Your love of theater or your love of designing things? My love of theater. For how, sure. How did that happen? 
I don't remember when I fell in love with theater, although I do remember going to Trinity Rep and seeing a Shakespeare play when I was something like in sixth grade. And I remember vividly riding the bus thinking, oh God, Shakespeare, people in tights and weird collars. And it was set on a Caribbean island. And every time the little shack upstage door opened, a band's music would go on. It was really, really loud and it was incredible. And then it would shut and the music would go off. And the door would open and the music would go on and it would shut. And all these people were in like Hawaiian shirts and lays. And it was not just understandable, but enjoyable for me. And so I remember thinking this was pretty interesting and very different. It surprised me. Cut to high school when I was in the concert choir and I was, I was singing and I was in the band. And as part of being in the concert choir, one of the requirements was that you had to be in the Christmas play and you had the ability to try out for the spring musical, which I did both of those things. And I really, and, and there was no such thing as set design or lighting design then because the math teacher was the set designer, Mr. Barnes. Little shout out to Mr. Barnes. And I performed in those shows and I loved theater and I loved that feeling that you got coming together and collaborating and, you know, killing yourself to learn those lines and to understand what stage left was versus stage right. That was always in the audition process. The really, that was the zinger. Miss Trombley, the choir director would say, Please take two steps, stage left, and you would think to yourself, "Oh God, which way, which way do I go?" And if you knew I that, still do that by I, way. I know I don't because I like really knew I had to learn from Miss Trombley. And then I think the the move into design happened my senior year in high school. We were doing Carousel, and I desperately wanted to play Billy Bigelow, and I feel like I had earned the right from all my years of hard work and being in all these plays, and I tried really hard on my audition, which was the soliloquy of all things um, for Billy Bigelow uh, from Carousel, and I tried really hard, and I did not get the part. I got Jigger Cragen. Okay. Typecasting. Pretty good. Obviously. <laughs> and I was so crestfallen and sad that Miss Trombley said, hey, maybe you want to talk to Mr. Barnes about helping with the scenery, and I thought in my crushed ego mind, Maybe if I could be like the second or third male lead, but I could also help with the scenery, it will like add up to being more of a substantial role in the show. And so I went over and I talked to Mr. Barnes. I said, hey, Ms. Trombley said that you thought that I might be okay on this, you know, to help out. And I remember painting what was actually huge pieces of cardboard jacked up to stand up, you know, with little theatrical jacks standing up. And I was painting those things. And I knew I would never again audition for a play because I didn't want to be my crushed in that way. But when I went to school, I went to UMass Amherst. And when I went to college, I really wanted to continue in the theater. And so I took a course called Beginning Techniques in Design, which teaches you a little bit about scenery and lighting and costume and sound. And I was quickly kind of brought into the scenic design fold by the graduate students and the professors saying, I think you're pretty good at this. But it was really because I had such a horrific auditioning experience in Carousel. And I know they're doing a revival. And you know who will not be auditioning? Me. <laughs> so just slight digression. Where's the kid that played Billy Bigelow now? He went to Berkeley School of Music. And he's a fantastic drummer. And he like lives and performs in Boston. Awesome. Yeah. Also not a performer, though. You know, he doesn't do a stage. But he had a really beautiful tenor. <laughs> so this is something that I've always wondered. And one of the reasons why I never even pursued any of the design elements is because I never thought of myself as an artist. I couldn't draw. I couldn't paint. I couldn't do any of that stuff. Do you need to have those skills in order to be 
a scenic designer? What what skills do you need to have to? to it's get so into? funny you say that because I spend, even though I just talked a lot about being a musician and in the concert choir and and in plays, I spent all of my time or much of my time as a kid playing sports, and I was a real jock, and I and I was a, an athlete at a pretty high level. And when I went to that to school and I and I studied some theatrical courses, I remember having the exact same feeling. And I said to my then professor, I could never be a set designer because I don't know how to draw. I don't know how to paint. I don't know how to do any of these things. And he said, you know, I think he quoted the the Picasso quote of good artists borrow, great artists steal. And he said, every single great idea has been come up, has has already been had. Learn to use a photocopy machine and rescale it and change the proportion and change the scale of these things. And so if you find an image, it's all about communicating your idea. It doesn't matter if you draw it or build a model or render it or anything. Find an idea that you love in a book or a painting or an etching or somewhere, photocopy it and shrink it down or push the perspective of it the way that you want it and then tracing paper over it. And I literally started by finding, you know, pictures you know, emotional response, research pictures, thinking, oh, this looks good, and I don't know how to draw that, but I'll just trace over it, and then I'll take another thing and change the size of it and trace over it and just fake my way through it. And then when you realize when you're in design meetings with people is you don't really have to draw. You have to be able to draw in a serviceable enough manner to, to be able to articulate an idea. And that's why I realized as I became a studio assistant later in life and I, I wasn't an amazing model maker or an amazing drafts person, but I was really good at being able to articulate an idea and just say, it's going to be something like this. If they are interested in that idea, then you can kind of refine it and get more granular. But if they're not interested in that idea, just throw it out. And you just need enough information to be able to get to the next stop. And so that photocopy thing was a huge deal. I mean, now we don't have photo, we have scanners and other cool things that happen on a computer. But back then it was about a photocopy and tracing paper. And I can speak firsthand that when I worked with you on Godspell, even I remember you very specifically being able to articulate what it was going to look at and me buying into that idea and that concept. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, you know, some people have asked, what is your, what is the number one skill you have to have as a set designer? And I think being able to draw is a, is a really good one, but for sure, number one is communicating skills. To be able to communicate with, you know, the writing team, directors, producers, and everyone else, because it's a collaborative art form, but really understanding how you can explain to the person sitting next to you or across the table from you, this is what I think is going to look like, and this is what it's going to feel like. And part of it is about storytelling. I mean, the real trick then, once you've got buy-in, community buy-in, is figuring out can you actually do it? And so like the, the second part of like, can you execute and not just kind of spin a good yarn about what we think it's going to look like? That's the other part. And I really learned all that at Williamstown. And that was, you know, my, I kind of went backward in a way with my theatrical education because when I went to Williamstown, I got the internship at Williamstown Theater Festival in 1997 that I had because I had taken a bunch of theater courses at school and finally, one of the grad students said, you know, you've got to make a, you have to have a real professional theatrical experience. You're kind of like this in the closet theater major. I had half the credits already acquired to graduate with a theater degree and I wasn't a declared major. And so I applied to Williamstown as an intern with a kind of makeshift portfolio. And I got, I got the internship and I showed up and I had no real idea. I had heard it was sort of like theater boot camp. I showed up there and they did at the time 11 regional theater size shows in one summer. So one a week. 
every single week and they were big and kind of all these theater luminaries were there. And I loved it instantly because this like loading in overnight kind of athletic endeavor really appealed to my kind of athletic jockey sensibility. But then also I had been a house painter, so I had really good brush skills. And I learned how to paint, prompt, build, set dress, communicate, and put shows up really, not in theory, but actually. So I learned how big materials came, how big, how to order things, how to buy things in bulk and how to run a scene shop and run a prop shop and run a paint shop. And we had a lot of responsibility there in that scene shop. As you can imagine, you sort of throw a bunch of people to the wall and see who sticks. And my energy and my tenacity and my ability to learn when you tell me something once was really big. And so I went back there five summers in a row, going from an intern to eventually running the design department. And I've been back many, many years since as a professional designer. But in those years, I had basically built and helped build and put together probably 75 shows. So by the time I moved to New York, I had built by hand, you know, what sometimes I was a carpenter, sometimes a painter, prompt person, all these shows. And so then it was about taking all of these amazing ways to create scenery and then infusing it into my, my design work because I knew how to make 27 different types of brick or 38 types of concrete, or I could paint scenery, or I could do all these things. And then it was like, okay, what is our, what is the show I'm working on want to be? But it really helped working downtown. Because of course, when you move to New York, you work in these off, 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 off Broadway theaters. And I had a lot of ingenuity, but I also had the ability to basically deliver on the back end of those really bad sketches and really bad renderings and totally patched together models. But I knew if I said, I can do this, that I could actually pull it off. So in addition to talent and your experience coming from Williamstown and that ingenuity, it takes a lot to work on Broadway. It's a bit of a a closed door industry, right? What characteristic do you think that you have that has nothing to do with set design that helped you get into this business? Well, you know, I really think that you're right. Broadway is a pretty closed door club. But if you really look at all the shows that are on Broadway... Probably 90%, and you probably know the statistic, 90% of them are, fee- are have been fed from some not-for-profit institution somewhere, whether it's an out-of-town tryout or from, you know, a place like the Public or Playwrights Horizons or, you know, the Roundabout or Manhattan Theater Club, which of course now have, you know, on-Broadway presences as producing organizations. So really, I think what I had was a lot of time and energy spent in the not-for-profit world. I mean, I did hundreds of downtown shows working at every single one of the not-for-profit institutions, you know, from playwrights to signatures to the public to the roundabout Lincoln Center and on and on and on, all the way down to really off-Broadway shows, you know, even MCC, all the way down. So I really had a lot of hard-won relationships where when you're doing a show, when you are the technical director, the production manager, the painter, the set designer, and the props person, and in some cases, producer, which I was with my co-producer, Carolyn Cantor at Edge Theatre Company, you just have a lot of people you've been in the trenches with. And when when you're in those artistic and theatrical trenches, as people move up the ladder themselves, they call their trench mate. And so I was the trench mate of a whole lot of people. I mean, we were talking before this started about people 
people who, who started in Second City and have moved up. When I look around at the Broadway landscape of people who are working, there's, of course, like the blue chip, been there forever, people who like seem like they are they have a one or two shows every single year on Broadway. But I was walking down 45th Street and I earlier this season or last season, and I saw... Sam Gold, who I knew when he was an intern at Williamstown Theater Festival, and Ben Stanton. I mean, I walked down this street and I see all these people who I was interns with. And so as we all grew up, we kept working with each other, including Michael Greif, who I was at Williamstown with. You know, that entire street was filled with people who I knew when I was 20. I think it's, you know, you make these relationships early and you codify them in those trenches. And as we all grow up, the meek will inherit the earth, I guess. Let's talk about your process, which you hinted at a little bit. But first of all, who hires you? More often than not, you're getting a call from who about a new show? Directors, mostly. I mean, I think that I, I'm not 100% what, what happens behind the closed doors. I think that probably on a Broadway show, the producer wants to vet that choice. But mostly if you're a, a strong producer artistic or financial or just with, with regard to power, because there's a lot of different kinds of producers, as you know. If you really believe in your directorial choice, most often I think you go with the person the director wants. So I think I'm getting calls from directors. And is your first meeting with the director, with the writer, with both of them? It's interesting to me because the work is on the page, right? So you yeah. can be inspired by that, but it's a visual art form. It depends. I think mostly the first meeting is with the director. I would say I would imagine the director and the playwright have had a conversation or the or the composers have had a conversation about generally the trajectory of the show and not necessarily the artistic vision of the show and then mostly the first if not first few meetings are without the writer because you know I've talked a lot about this being a set designer really does feel like a therapist and I liken a lot of my work to the work of a therapist because I sit across the table or in a room with someone and we talk 87% in a meeting about things that are not having to do with the show. And we talk all about it to sort of take a snapshot of who we both are in this moment in time. I mean, I think about this a lot because people a lot want to talk about the making of Hamilton and what happened in the first meeting and what happened when I interviewed and what happened in the seventh meeting. And I think if Tommy and I, the director of Hamilton and I, sat down now, four years later or whatever it has been since the original conception of the show, we'd probably design the show differently. Not that we have think there's anything wrong with the show, and I love what we made. I'm really proud of it, but but we're different people. And so the first few meetings are often just kind of about like feeling out the person. You know, I have a lot of repeat collaborators. So it's sort of like, how are you? What's happening in your life? Where are you? And then it's about like kind of what's your take on the show? And I let those meetings wash over me like in a meditative way, and I try and listen well, and I try and think. God, they keep talking about, you know, how hard the world is or something. So then I, it's all refracted through the prism of what that moment is. You think, well, are we doing something to celebrate? Take your mind off of how hard things are? Or are we going to lean into that? And then it starts the conversation. And so you really have to listen and pull out a couple of little kernels of the conversation and then try and explode the idea from there. Do you like when writers get very specific about scenery or set dressings or... Do you, would you rather than just leave it all out? So I, I mean, I love it. I, I, I don't know if I'm rare in this thinking, but I love working with living writers. I love working with living writers who are really involved. I think the more involved, the better. And I mean that, I also feel that way about producers. I, my process is really not precious. 
I'm excited to hear from anyone in the room, including other members of the design team commenting on the scenery. You know, at some point, you've got to like sort of shut the door and go to work and then come back out with something that you then want feedback on. But I'm excited. If a, if a writer says to you, the desk in the room, I'm looking at your desk, has to be sweatshirt gray or whatever it is. And no matter what happens, I don't care if we set the thing underwater, there needs to be a desk in that room. It has to be. You do that because it's their baby. We're sort of the midwives trying to help that baby get born. But I, again, getting back to the therapy, I'll say, tell me more about why. What is it about gray? What is it about the color? What is it about the fact that you think you need a desk? And I'll just keep kind of unpacking that. Inevitably, they'll come up with something like, oh my God, I never thought about this, but I had a gray desk in my house. Or my great-grandfather had this thing. He told me about a gray desk all the time. And you start to unpack that and then... Three months later, they say, you know what? It doesn't have to, we don't, in fact, not only does it not have to be gray, we don't need the desk at all, but somehow they've had a cathartic revelation about why the desk. And so, you know, it turns out that the the vase on the table winds up being gray because actually it's important to have a little tiny eyelash of gray. And so it's all about communicating and trying to get people, trying to help people communicate why they feel so tied to a certain thing. And And I've discovered that a lot. Really, if you open up the lines of communication to all of your collaborators, a lot of beautiful pearls of wisdom fly out and a lot of crazy stuff flies out that is not interesting. But I always feel like the most interesting things are the non-interesting things that get thrown out that people like hold on to so dearly until you can kind of go like, let it go. It's okay. You know, we don't need that thing. It's cool. And how different does the process get for shows directors are very very different so for example d revan hansen versus hamilton yeah i would imagine that those processes were different just from the style of the shows themselves the era in which they were set yeah i'm well yeah i mean certainly the the finished product is very very different but the process was very different and also the attachment by each of the collaborators was really different. Lynn was in probably my third meeting for Hamilton, my third design meeting, maybe my fourth. Tommy and I had kind of sharpened our pencils a little bit and started, you know, pulling a bunch of research. And we had much of the span of Hamilton on the wall with regard to research on the wall of my office. And we brought Lynn in and Lynn knows what he's good at. And Lynn knows what he's not good at. And Lynn was pretty clear like he had no idea what the show looked like how it moved the materials it was made out of or anything he was like i'll do the music and the lyrics in the book and i will have an opinion if you show me something but i have no idea the writers of dear evan hansen also had no idea but they had put down on paper a very very specific design challenge several design challenges but one in particular which was how do you render the internet in a sort of immersive way also, that could be depicted in a, an emotional landscape a couple times in a show. And then also, how do you go back into like moments of real realism and kind of pockets of isolation? And they had a much more specific desire to be involved with what's that going to look like? What's that going to feel like? How are we going to know that we're there all the way throughout? I mean, Lynn was there in that third or fourth meeting and then didn't see anything for months and months and months and months and months. And then even when he saw something, he was kind of like, yeah, that's great. Because he trusted Tommy and Andy and the rest of us to create a cohesive thing. The writers of Europe and Hansen were really involved and in fact, pushing and prodding and saying, Shh. you know, even as, as granular as, you know, that show model is not a good 
tool, getting back to tools of how to collaborate with your collaborators or, or communicate with your collaborators rather, because Michael Greif and I knew that if we gave Peter Negrini 10 flying light emitting monitors and a bunch of translucent and screens that could be projected upon that we could make the world come to life and conjure a whole environment. But you can imagine showing someone a model of like little gray and black squares and rectangles. And even a rendering was like, this is not so great. I see that you're putting in some light. And when you talk about like Jaffe Wideman, the lighting designer is going to carve up spaces with light. They were like, what the fuck are you talking about? Is it going to be a warm space? Is it going to be a space where this single mom and her, you know, only child are going to, you're going to feel like they're home. And so renderings became much more useful as tools. And I did several renderings just for the writers. This is what a warm world could look like. This is what the school interior could look like. This is what Evan's bedroom could look like. And the model was for the scene shop and for the design team. And had, and the writers were really like allergic to it. Not in a horrible way, but just in a way that I totally understand. When I look at that model, it's like the least exciting, no potential energy box you can look at. Whereas you can imagine the Hamilton one is pretty dead on. When you look at the model, it's pretty much what it is. You've been in the rooms for the creation and development of a lot of shows now. You ran a theater company yourself. You have a producerial mind. I've, I've known this since I met you. When you're in a room as a set designer and you see a show and it's not going so well, in all the shows that you've seen now, is there something you can point to as the one thing where shows start to drift? Is it the book? Is it collaboration? Is it... Something you see where, like, this isn't going well, and if only they would X, they could get on a better path. No. <laughs> imagine imagine if I came out with the magic truth right there. No. I think some shows go awry. Obviously, when you're in the workshop format, you're looking a lot at the writing and the music, and you're not really thinking about the achievability necessarily of the physical production, and you're looking at performers, and it's funny because there's a lot of conversation about how much do performers add to the trajectory or the creation of a show? And, you know, there's a lot of that conversation in the last couple of years. I'll tell you what, if you have a horrible performer in a workshop, it's really hard to see that character, right? If you have a revelatory performer, you can see that character in a different light. And so, you know, they do really help develop shows, but there isn't a magic formula, I don't think. I mean, I've seen shows that I think seem like they're steering a little left or right, and it's sort of hard to put your finger on. Some of it is you can nip and tuck the writing. Some of it is the physical production will come in and really create some cohesion. Some of it is just more time and you need to, you know, like anything else and making a new show and certainly a new musical is nearly impossible to make it good. Sometimes it's just getting it up and not having it be so good and allowing a whole lot of smart people to look at it and everyone make their notes. And when you come back together, you sort of, if, you know, if you can fix... Let's say there's 10 massively awful things wrong with the show and you can fix six of them. The four that are left over sometimes work themselves out because you've fixed, you know, some kind of critical mass of them. But there isn't one that I go like, oh God, if the writing isn't tight, the thing's over. Because I've seen shows get worked on even in, I mean, I always say to my collaborators that inevitably I look on the first preview and directors and, and book writers and, you know, lyricists are biting their nails and dying in the back of the house. I always say when we get to first preview, this is when we start the work because so much of a show and a lot of it, you know, you, the show gets better with development, the show gets better with readings and labs and workshops and all those things for sure. 
But once you're done with the craziness of getting the show wrapped up in a physical production and all that stuff and getting the understanding what the DNA of it is and how you're going to market it and all those things, then you go to work and you cut. Then you got to like start killing babies. You got to start killing like loved ones. You go like, you know what? We love that monologue. Kill it. We love that scene. Move it. Right. And you, you because it's like time, you know, you got to go. And the people who are nimble and malleable in that moment succeed. Really. I mean, Hamilton as a good example. There's a, and, and God bless Lin-Manuel Miranda for like, you know, putting a lot of those cut pieces of material on the Hamilton mixtape. But that whole John Adams rap, which now says, sit down, John, you fat beep, was a whole slinky down the staircase, amazingly performed, incredibly written rap song that Lynn did, that Hamilton did, and cut. You know, it became one line. And boy, it was a good cut. You know, you got to kill those things. And you can, you can imagine, like, that was a pretty great thing to see. Gone. So the people that can stay tight on their game and previews succeed. Best design that you've seen that you did not do. Something that you've sat back and been like, oof. Well, when I go to the theater, I close my eyes because I don't want to see anyone else's. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's hard to pick one because I early on was told to never leave a show early. And, and always try and learn from any experience. I know this sounds like I'm not getting this is a non-answer answer, but it's really true. I have been so grateful for seeing horrible shows and terribly designed shows or things that I think that the design like really tanked it. And so some of my best experiences in the theater are ones where I think, geez, I never would have done that. But in seeing that, you think, why would I not have done that? It's the same thing about that table analogy earlier. It's like, why did they do that? And listen, everyone working on this level, they're working at a very high level and they're really smart and they're some of the smartest people around. You just think, how did they get there? Like, how did that actually get built? That thing cost $63,000 at least. How did it get on stage? Like, how did they go shop visits and they painted it and they like loaded it in and they teched it in and it took like 12 hours, 15 hours? How is that thing in the middle of the stage? And those are the ones that stand out for me much more. You know, hopefully the design you're not really thinking about, you're thinking, wow, this show is so amazing and emotionally arresting, or I love the story. But so many of the things that I'm so grateful that I saw are the things that like didn't really land. I prefer not to talk about those here by name, but I'm, I'm grateful that they exist because you try and get better or you see a great idea and you think, how can I reapply that in an interesting way later down the road? You've seen a lot of changes, obviously, in design elements over the past couple of decades. Where, what do you think scenic design is going to look like 20 years from now? That's a really interesting question because right now it seems like, you know, my like dirty little secret is that I only do about 30% of theater in my career and everyone seemingly wants to talk to me about VR and everyone wants to talk to me about immersive theater because somehow they think that Sleep No More invented the immersive theater. Nothing against Sleep No More, but they, you know, they didn't invent it. And I think that those things are just crayons in the box. You know, they happen to be a tool that is a much bandied about term. VR by itself is not a method of story. It's, it's, a, it's a tool that you can use to tell stories, but it is not, in fact, a whole new genre of storytelling. It is still a story inside of it. So part of me wants to answer by saying projections are going to be much more pervasive, although they're becoming, I don't know what percentage, but probably, you know, 50% of the shows use some version of projection. 
you know, people want to talk about immersion and environmental design. Certainly, you know, our production of Godspell, a lot of things that happen in the round are environmental. I don't think people understand the difference between environmental and immersive theater anyway. That distinction is not... People say, like, like sleep no more. What is the difference? I think the difference is an environmental design is one in which most of, if not all, of the theater's surroundings are treated scenically. And so you look around and you're kind of sitting inside of an environment. Immersion is when the line between the performer and the audience is blurred. So that you, as the audience member, as opposed to that guy, like, plants in the audience pulling someone up or, you know, talking to the person in CE7 or whatever, where there really is an attempt at blurring the line between actor and audience. And I think that Broadway certainly, it used to be when I moved to the city 20 years ago, Broadway producers really wanted to spend money on the things that you see when the lights go down, mostly if it's in a proscenium setting, what happens behind the plaster line in the proscenium. And, you know, in recent years, many, many, many people have broken that fourth wall or broken the proscenium line and come out into the audience. So I think there'll be more of that just because the world has attached their phones and with our insular little minds, we spend our time looking at screens and we spend our time demanding more of visual uh, mediums and it doesn't cost that much more for a kind of bust up experience and you're looking for any way to sell a ticket and so if a patron can go away and if Tom Hanks isn't in the show or whatever, it's not like some big A-list celebrity... If they, you can't say like we're selling Tom Hanks or we're selling, you know, name the person you want. It, it doesn't cost that much more to have your patron walking away saying, oh, but what they've done to the theater, you know, it's so amazing what they did to the, all that work. And, you know, does that sell some amount of money? I don't know if it offsets the cost. To me, again, getting back to the VR, or the not VR, the immersive or not be immersive. It's like, does it help the story? The why of it all? And if you just get back to the therapy, why? Mr. Director, Miss Director, friend of mine, do you want to wrap the entire theater with name the material? Why? Is there a thing that, like, is there a line in the text? Is there a thing about people want to feel claustrophobic, so you want to bring everything down? Like, what is the, what's the why? And if you can answer it, you'll know whether you should wrap that theater. I feel like more and more as I, as I move on in my career, I'm making less scenery, not more scenery. Because it, it's like, Oftentimes it gets in the way. It's just distracting. And like, if you can't answer why is it here, you really shouldn't put it there. Okay, my last question, which is my genie question. We're at the end? We're at the end. I was just, get, I was just settling in. <laughs> Jeez. We, we can hang out. I'll, right. just leave, I'll just leave. Go about you my say your genie question? My genie question. Like as in out of the bottle? As in the genie from Aladdin. You don't mean like the genie lift where you go up and change the lights. No, I mean, right. I'm a genie well, you're in a theater. bottle, baby. Okay, got it. The genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and says, David, you've designed such amazing shows. I want to thank you for all your contributions to the American theater already. Yes. And so many more to come. I want to grant you one wish. What's the one thing about Broadway that drives you effing mad? frustrates you, would make you flip this gray table up in the air, bang on a table, that you'd ask this genie to wish away. The one thing that drives you the most nuts. I have two. Sorry. Can you ask the genie for one more wish? No. I'm <laughs> just kidding. Diversity. It's a disaster. Period. The other one would be accessibility to the, you know, to certain audiences, but diversity. And do you think we've made strides in this, in this way you know, over the past several uh, years? Let's go with sure, but Yes, of course. But like the slow drip is ridiculous. And you know, if if Hamilton can be the most successful show by a magnitude of I don't know what, lots, three, 
you know, it, it sent a lot of people reeling. I think people were, wait a minute, like, and here's Lynn writing these things, mainly because he didn't see any amazing characters that he could play or be cast as. So he decided to write a whole bunch of amazing ones that he could play or be cast as. But yes, we've made strides, but like nowhere near enough. It's ridiculous. So what, like you just brought up a great example that I've written about on the blog, because I've always said that it's about the writers, right? So Lynn is a great example. He was like this... I don't see enough people like me in shows, so I'm going to write stories about people like me. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a great takeaway. What's one thing you think people out there listening can do to help make diversity better in the theater in general? Well, it's the writers, but it's really the producers, right? Because, I mean, there's tons of writers, minority writers, writers of color, like Coleman Domingo, Terrell McCrane. Like, I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and list people who are writing about that experience or writing with... Minority casts. But then you got to get slots. And just, again, going back to what I said earlier about the regional theater and the feeder theaters for Broadway, there are very few writers of any socioeconomic or race demographic that show up and their play goes directly to Broadway. Most of them go out, go somewhere else, these plays. You know, David Mamet writes a new play, it goes to Broadway. That's It's not going to start at the public, most likely. But look at the regional theaters and what they're producing. And just look at those subscription seasons and, and like, women, writers of color, and, like, what is going on. And they're producing the same 19 white guys over and over and over again. And so what they can do is demand more of their artistic directors and their producers around the country. And it's ridiculous because you go to these theaters and they're like, well, we have to program something for, like, the old blue hair people. We have to program something for the minority. It's like the minority slot. And you're like, you know, come on. Can there be two minority slots? A very good answer and a very, very topical topic. We've got lots to do in this industry, and we're actually going to have a guest coming on the podcast in just a few weeks or so to talk about this very issue. So tune in then. Thank you so much Thank you for, for being here today. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to sign up for my super conference November 11th and 12th. Go to theproducersperspective.com and register today. It's going to be a blast. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.